Well, good morning. What a joy to uh, be back teaching in Luke with you all, studying this book. You know, I've discovered this book was a lot tougher than I thought it was going to be. But I've also discovered just how rich a book this is for us to be mining together. This morning we're in Luke 11. I'm going to start about verse 14. What we've got here is a series of incidents and then uh, some quotes that flow out of this incident. Uh, a lot of people view this as just a kind of collection of loosely associated anecdotes, but it isn't. It, it is a very intentional argument, a thematic argument that's well organized and intentional. And in fact, it's the, it's the pieces, the verses that kind of seem like they're stuck in there and they don't really belong that really give us the clue to where the uh, theme is going, to to what's being developed here. I think we'll see this as we go, so let's jump in. Let me start reading just the first uh, three verses. Luke 11, verse 14. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now this sets up the whole passage. This tells us what Jesus is going to be doing. Tells us what is uh, the theme of the passage. First of all, Jesus is going about his ministry. It says he was casting out a demon. Jesus had been casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching the gospel to the poor. These are the things that Jesus had been doing all the way through the book of Luke. But these are also the exact same things that Isaiah prophesied that the, that the Messiah would be doing. Isaiah 29 and, and 35 and 61 all talk about the Messiah doing these things. And these are things Jesus has been doing. We also see in the book of, of Luke that the, the, the thing that really got people excited, however, was the casting out of demons. That was what amazed them. That's what caused them to be in awe. That over and over we see Jesus trying to bring them back to the important issue of who He is and responding to the things that He is saying, responding to the Word. Anyway, Jesus is casting out a demon. In the New American Standard Version, which I prefer studying, um, it says, and Jesus cast out a demon that was dumb. Now, that is not Luke's commentary on the intelligence of demons. It is simply that the demon had the effect of making the person he was oppressing unable to speak. You know, and when we study passages like this, incidents, we have to be a little careful not to try to, 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 to deduce more than is there about what we know about demons. We know very little. We're going to talk a little more about it as, as a little later this morning. But we just need to, to have some caution about what we conclude about demons. Anyway, Jesus casts out this demon and the crowd is amazed. But some in the crowd immediately begin to try to discredit Jesus. In Matthew and Mark's account, we're told that it was the religious leaders that did this. They saw Jesus as the enemy. They saw him as a danger. So they immediately try to put a, a sinister twist, sinister twist on, on what Jesus 
is doing. They impugn his motive. They claim that he's in conspiracy with Beelzebub. Now, Beelzebub is just a, a derogatory name for Satan. It literally means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung. And it's, it's simply a way of referring to Satan. These leaders were claiming that Jesus was in league somehow with Satan and therefore had a hidden agenda. In order to maintain this distortion, these people had to take what Jesus was doing out of love and compassion and twist it to make it somehow seem like it was malicious, somehow seem like it was an attempt to control or harm. See, the enemy's always doing that with God's love, always trying to make it look harsh and constraining and suffocating or look like it's an attempt to manipulate or control. Then there were others in the crowd who weren't going that far. They weren't against Jesus per se. They just wanted to be strictly objective here. They, they felt they needed more information. They needed a sign from heaven. They needed more proof before they were willing to pass verdict on Jesus. Now that may sound eminently reasonable, but Jesus sees right through that to a, to a hard issue. So these are the, this is what's going on in this passage. Jesus is first going to address those who take the evidence and distort it, sometimes intentionally, in order to avoid facing who Jesus is. He's going to do that in verses 20, or 17 through 28. And then from 29 through 36, Jesus is going to address those who refuse to come to a conclusion, who refuse to commit themselves because they always want more evidence, more information. Let's uh, start with his response to this, this first group. Let me just read the first couple of verses of that. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Jesus starts by easily showing the, the, the fault in their logic. Uh, the, he asks a series of questions that kind of reveal the absurdity of their reasoning. He says, now listen, if I'm in, in, in league with Satan, then why would I go around undoing everything Satan did? Why would I weaken his position? Why would I be letting go, letting free people he's already taken captive? It doesn't make sense. In fact, if you look at the logic, the logic would lead you to the conclusion that I'm against Satan and that I'm overpowering him and I'm plundering him. And then Jesus points out their double standard. See, when one of their followers, when one of them would would cast out a demon, they would say, there's proof that God is with them. But when Jesus cast out a demon, they said, there's proof that he's in cahoots with Satan. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. You've got to go one way or the other with this. You can't have it both ways. If when one of you casts out a demon, that's proof that God is with him, then when I cast out demons, that's got to be proof that God's with me. Or if when I cast out demons, that's proof that Satan that I'm with Satan, 
then when one of you cast out demons, that's proof that you're with Satan. Now, which way are you guys going to go with this? You can't have it both ways. You've got to decide. In fact, the people among you who God has used to cast out demons will be your judges. Think carefully about which way you're going to go with this. But the problem is when someone has a, a political agenda, when someone's fabricating the accusations to start with, when someone has a, a, an emotional commitment to, to discrediting Jesus, the, 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 the logic, the reasons don't seem to matter that much. There seems to be a, a powerful tendency to excuse oneself from the rules of fairness when all that one wants to do is to discredit Jesus. But he doesn't get angry. He doesn't react to them. He just goes straight to the truth. He says to them, if I'm doing this now by the finger of God, and by that he's referring to God's power. Incidentally, God only needs to use his little finger in dealing with demons. It's not tough for him. But Jesus says, if... I am doing this by the power of God, and the logic leads to that conclusion that I am, then you've got something to deal with here. That's when he he says uh, this next verse that, that doesn't seem to follow. He says, the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, how does that fit in? Well, see, well, what Jesus is doing is, is getting right to the heart of things, recognizing that the issue isn't that the, that the information isn't there, that, 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 that logic wouldn't lead them to this conclusion. He's saying, listen, if you are willing to be honest and to think logically, then you're going to come to the conclusion that the kingdom of God is here among you because the king is here. The Messiah is here. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Messiah. The Old Testament prophecies all pointed so clearly to what Jesus, what the Messiah would be doing. And it's exactly the things that Jesus was doing. And these religious leaders, if they would simply look at the information and not try to twist it, would it come inescapably to that conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. The proof is, is right there. It's unavoidable. And Jesus is confronting them with the fact that they now have to deal with him, who he is. And they're doing everything they can to avoid that conclusion. I've spoken before about the Jesus Seminar. It's been in the news a lot lately. It's a group of scholars who get together every other year to discover the real Jesus, the authentic Jesus, the the, the Jesus of history. And the only thing that this group of people can agree on is that the uh, Jesus described in our New Testament can't possibly be the real Jesus. And it's always mystified me why they would resort to, to such tortured logic and absurd reasoning just to avoid the simple reality that the Jesus we have described in our Bibles is the real Jesus. I mean, there is no other Jesus. The Jesus that they're coming up with is purely a figment of their imagination. The Jesus we have described in our scriptures is the real Jesus who came to this earth 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for us. 
That's the real Jesus. And it always bothered me why they would, how they would use different rules in studying the Bible, in addressing the issues of the Bible, than they do using it for any other literature. And then I read what Jesus says, and it makes perfect sense. You see, if the attempt is to avoid the conclusion that Jesus is king, and as the rightful true king, our rightful place is to recognize him, bow down before him, and submit ourselves to him, then that conclusion needs to be avoided at all costs. And the dedication to avoiding that conclusion is what leads to the abandonment of logic, of reason, of common sense. Jesus uh, kind of presses his point, starting verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is basically saying, listen, not only am I not working with Satan, but I am am more powerful than Satan. I am able to come and plunder, to take back what Satan has taken. Not only am I not in league with Satan, I am more powerful than Satan, and you have to deal with me. See, that's why he moves into that other verse that doesn't seem to follow, where he says, he who is not with me, is against me. What he's saying here is that you got to decide. You got to go one way or another. You got to deal with me and you're either for me or against me. You're either with me or against me. Either you're on my team under my leadership or whether you know it or not, you're on Satan's team and under his influence. Now that may sound terribly offensive to many. As if all non-Christians are this, these vicious, evil, demonic monsters. But that's not what Jesus is saying. And we're very wrong when we act that way. The reality is there are some who are overtly evil. There are even some who worship Satan. But the teaching of Scripture is that most are unwilling and unwitting victims of his deception, of his, of his manipulation, control. But what Jesus is making clear is that that there is no neutral ground. See, the enemy uses his deception to to frighten, to to confuse, to, to distract by pulling people into desiring things other than God. All of this is directed at keeping people from finding freedom in Christ, from 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 joining Christ's kingdom. From, uh, from being used by Him to be ultimately loving and constructive. So what he's saying is, again, that, that, that there is no neutral ground. The point is that you have to choose. Then Jesus uh, takes a slight left turn, verse 24. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says... I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept and clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is your mother who gave you birth and nursed you. 
He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus here is pointing out that exorcism isn't the important thing. He uses a metaphor, a picture. He says, there's this demon, it leaves this guy, goes out into what he calls arid places, that's dry, waterless places where there's no satisfaction, wanders around a little and says, hey, I might as well go to where I left. He goes back, finds the place all cleaned up and, and, and really nice, and so he says, this is great. He goes out, gets seven of his friends for roommates, comes back, and they move back in, and the condition of that man is worse than it was before. Now, what's the point here? Is the point, don't get rid of demons, it won't do you any good? No. See, the, the point that I think that Jesus is making is even if you got rid of a demon, unless you replace that with something else, it's not going to do you any good. You're going to go back to the way things were or worse. You see, if, if you're coming here looking for clues on how to reform your life, how to clean it up a little, how to get rid of some bad habits, that's not going to do you any good. Even if you do gain some clues, even if you do get rid of some bad habits, they're just going to come back and with a vengeance or worse things will take their place. See, so what do we put there instead? What do we replace? Well... Again, we run into one of these verses that don't seem to follow. Where at verse 27, he says, As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Literally, she says, Blessed is the womb who carried you and the breasts at which you nursed. I mean, that was a, 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 a sweet way of, of saying, Boy, your mother must be proud to have such a powerful and smart son. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, actually, the ones that are blessed are those that hear the word and obey it. See, there's the answer to that question. What do we, what do we, we put in instead? The word of God and obedience to it. See, that is the positive that has to replace the negative if there's going to be any lasting change. Now let me digress real briefly here to talk about demons. As I said, we want to be careful not to try to develop too intricate a system. Scripture gives us very little detail about demons. And an awful lot of the systems that people develop are by inferences to things like this, where they, they believe that, 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 that strong man is a category of demon. Well, strong man isn't a category of demon. It's just an analogy, a word picture that Jesus was using. And I would encourage you not to get involved in all these, these speculative details about demons and their hierarchies and, and how uh, all the intricate ways they work and operate. We don't need that stuff. But we do need to understand a little bit about the demons. Let me uh, tell you uh, an incident just by way of illustration. Several years ago, got a phone call here at the office that someone was bringing in a woman who was demon-possessed for us to deal with. So I asked Don to come in to my office. I called Harden up on the phone, asked him to come over. 
And this woman, I met her and her husband at the door. She was unable to walk. She was in a wheelchair. She was writhing in pain. She was crying out. She was fighting coming into the church. We got her into the church, took her back to a back office, sat and talked with her and her husband. After we had a, a while to get an idea what was going on, I spoke to her, told her what was going on, told her what I was going to do. At that point, she started crying out in pain. So I spoke to the demons. I said, stop it. Told them they had no authority, no power. Jesus disarmed them on the cross and that they needed to let her go and leave her alone. And they did. She was calm. And we talked more with her about uh, about who she was in Christ, about the authority that she has in Christ, affirmed the truth of Scripture to her, told her how to deal with this kind of thing. She and her husband walked out, relieved, still a little shaky. Well, next day, or maybe it was a couple of days afterwards, I'm not sure, got a call back, and this woman was in the same place she was before, if not worse. And that was no surprise to us. Now, what was going on? Well, let me share a little bit about what we know about demons. First of all, demons exist. They are spiritual beings created by God. They were created as angels, but they rebelled in God, against God, and have placed themselves in hateful opposition to God. But as created beings, they are, they have no real power against God. He takes care of them with his little finger. Jesus is the stronger man who, who, who defeats them easily. The only power and authority they have ever had is in their attempt to use the law of God, the law of justice and holiness against God and lay claim to the human race. See, they argue that since humans also rebelled against God and humans willingly have accepted the, uh, the deceptions of the enemy, then the, they have a rightful claim to dominate and control the human race. Well, Scripture tells us that God got rid of even that authority and power by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to fulfill the requirements of the law, to fill the requirements of justice and holiness. Colossians 2, we're told that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the demons. He removed all authority. He stripped them of all authority. So demons are beings that are powerless. We have absolutely no reason to fear them in the least. They have no power. The demons live in spiritual realms, in what the scripture calls the heavenlies, heavenly places. That's also where God is. Ephesians 1, we're told that Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the heavenly places, in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realms. Ephesians 6, we're told that our spiritual enemies are in the heavenly places, in the heavenlies, in spiritual realms. Now, what and where are these heavenlies? I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that much. But I do know where we connect with them, where we come in contact with them. That's inside, in what Scripture would call our hearts, what we would call our minds, right? Right at the seat of our, 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 our thinking, our soul, our thinking, our, our feelings, our imaginations. That's where we connect. When I want to go and enjoy my, my, my God's, my Father's presence, 
But I go inside. I can be driving down the road with my eyes open, but I go inside and, and enjoy His presence. Horrible things can be happening on the outside, but we can go into the heavenlies in our heart and connect with Him and know His love, know His, His, His goodness and presence in our lives. Well, the, the, the uh, old Puritans used to refer to this as a doorway, that we go through a doorway to the heavenlies. In fact, that's the analogy that, that Jesus uses in Revelation 3. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in to him and fellowship with him and he with me. Now, this is the 90s. We may, since we all watched Star Trek growing up, uh, call it a portal. Call it some kind of, of passageway, some connection. But it all is the same, that we have a place inside of us that connects with the heavenlies, where we can go and be aware of God's presence. It's through that passageway, through that connection, that the Holy Spirit speaks to our thoughts and speaks to our emotions. But it's also through that same connection that enemy spirits can speak to our thoughts and speak to our, our, our desires and our feelings. Now, how do we know at any given time whether that voice we're hearing, that, that, that thought we're having, is our own, is from God, is from a demon? I would contend that they all sound the same. They all sound very much like our internal voice. How do we know which it is? Well, quite simply, it's whether that thought, whether that urge is consistent with Scripture and leads us to obedience to Scripture, to hear and obey the Word. That's how you tell. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They recognize my voice. Why? Because it's a different tone? No. It's not that it sounds different. It's that His voice we're used to hearing in the Word. And it's consistent with the Word. You know, many people think they're hearing from God because it sounds somehow to them inside their head like it is God. But they may be just hearing themselves or hearing demons. See, you can't tell by the tone. You can only tell by the Word. When Jesus Himself was dealing with Satan, the way He dealt with the voice of Satan was to remind Himself of what was written in the Word of God. And then to use the Scripture to lay against what Satan was saying and to reveal the deception there, the trap that was being laid there so that it was obvious and to resist the enemy at that point using the Word of God. See, the enemy has no power. The only way he can control our behavior, can affect it at all, is through deception, through lies, deceit, manipulation. To get us to be afraid. Because when we're afraid, we may withdraw from obedience to God because we're afraid of what will happen. He can confuse us. He can inject a question. You know, did God really say that? Can you really trust God with the things that really matter to you? your, Your deepest needs? Does God really care about you? Are you just a cog on the wheel of His big schemes for the universe? Does He really care whether whether you find peace and fulfillment? He starts to inject these twists, these confusion. And by getting us to either be afraid, to be confused, or to be incited to to go after something other than Him, to, to follow our lust, our desire for something else, 
be distracted from Him. He can gain manipulative control over our behavior. And as our behavior is affected, we become more frightened and more confused and more distracted, ensnared in this desire. It's what Scripture calls giving ground. The only only uh, remedy is to resist the devil using the full armor of God, especially the, uh, the, the, the word of truth and the shield of faith. Trusting God and His character, who He is, and not listening to the, to, the, to the implications that He's not loving and good. And looking at His Word, taking His Word and laying these deceitful thoughts and, and, and feelings against the Word, recognizing for what they are. We meet the enemy at the doorway, at the portal. We resist him. We repel him using the Word of God. So, now what happened uh, to this woman that came in my office? She was so confused, so afraid, that she had lost all resistance to the enemy. That when he told her that she couldn't move her legs, she couldn't. Now, did the demons have control of her legs? I don't think so. I think they had control of her mind, and her mind controlled her legs. She couldn't resist. She was so dominated, so demonized, because she had given so much ground to the enemy. She had, she had allowed her fears and her confusion to grow to such an extent that she was powerless. But when she came and we prayed with her, prayed for her, resisted the enemy for her, then she was able to hear the truth. And the truth set her free. But when she left our presence... Uh, she no longer had the truth. She could no longer hold on to it and obey it. And as a result, she ended up right where she was. Didn't do her any good. You see, you can cast demons out of someone all day long. You can cast demons out of yourself all day long. And what they'll do is they'll go grab seven buddies and go around and get in line in the doorway again. you got an endless stream. It's not going to do you any good. No, the solution is not casting out demons. The solution... Is, is learning, letting the, the Spirit of God renew your mind as you feed on the Word of God. Learning to resist the enemy using the truth, the Word of God. Letting God heal the wounds, the, the, the fears that you've accumulated over the years that the enemy ex, exploits. He studies your weaknesses. He studies the, the, the emotional wounds that were inflicted on you as children, the, your, your genetic predispositions. He studies the, the, the distortions in your thinking and the fears you've accumulated to use those to exploit. Let the Spirit of God bring those to your mind and, and to heal those and to take away those, uh, those places where the enemy would manipulate to cause you to be afraid or confused or, 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 or to, to, to be seeking satisfaction somewhere other than in Him, to pursue them, be distracted from Him. And then resist the enemy using the, the, the Word of God and obey the Word in His face. There's nothing more powerful that you can do. The enemy is rude. He will barge in, creep in. But our Lord knocks and awaits your invitation. Invite Him in instead. Invite Him to come and fellowship with you. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus has addressed those who take the evidence and twist it. 
distort it because they want to avoid following the logic out. They want to avoid the conclusion. And the best way for them is to twist it. It Is to somehow make it look like Jesus has bad motive. That Jesus is somehow dangerous and sinister. Now he's going to go on and address the people who don't go that far. They say, no, Jesus is a good guy. But I'm just not quite sure yet. I need a little more information, a little more proof. I need another sign. They constantly refuse to come to conclusion, to commit themselves, always needing more. Verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body is full of light. But when they are bad, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of a lamp shines on you. Now Jesus starts by saying, first of all, that no extra sign will be given. Why not? I mean, if, if by doing another sign people would be convinced and believe, why wouldn't Jesus do it? Well, the fact is that if people would be convinced by one more sign or a hundred more signs. Jesus would have done them. See, he gave his life for us. Why would he hold back anything else? He wouldn't. But you see, the rest of the fact is that if people aren't responding to the information they have, more information isn't going to do them any good. Now, you may be telling yourself that you need just a little more information, a little better proof, uh, another sign, some really conclusive, knock-your-socks-off sign. And then you'll believe. Then you'll trust your life to Jesus. You'll follow Him. But that simply is not true. I don't mean to sound rude or presumptuous, as if I know your heart better than you do. I don't. But Jesus does. And that's what he is saying. Jesus has been doing signs all over the place. He's been raising the dead, feeding the 5,000, casting out demons, healing the sick. He has been doing all kinds of signs. And still, they ask for another sign. The problem isn't with the signs. The problem isn't that they don't have enough information. Jesus does say though, that he will give them one more great sign, the sign of Jonah. 
Now in Matthew, we're told what the sign of Jonah is. It was just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the earth. Jesus would be in the tomb for three days, then he would rise again. The resurrection is the ultimate sign. The fact that the grave, the tomb is empty, and that Jesus is now alive is all the proof anyone needs. It is the ultimate proof on which everything else hangs. If that's not true, then Jesus is not Lord. But it is true. And Jesus is Lord. The information is out there for anyone who will look. When I was a a young Christian, I got a hold of Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Big, thick book written just full of proofs of the resurrection. I thought this was great. I ate it up. Then I got more evidence that demands a verdict. Another big, thick book. And then I got Henry Morrison's Who Moved the Stone? And these are great books full of proof. And I got it all outlined and I crammed it all into my head and I was ready because I could prove to anybody that the resurrection happened. And if the resurrection happened, then the rest follows. But you know, when I got out talking to people, I discovered that they didn't really care about the evidence. They didn't want to hear it. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't an issue of information. It was an issue of light. The ability to see, to let that information bring you to the logical, to the appropriate conclusion. They didn't. It wasn't a a problem of the intellect. It was a problem of the heart. A moral question. A spiritual question. Jesus says that even the queen of Sheba, when she just heard that there was wisdom in Israel, she didn't say, well, I want some more evidence. Now she went and looked for herself and found out for herself. She came from the ends of the earth and, and, and discovered the truth for herself. And at that point she saw that it was true. And she gained wisdom from Solomon. And the, the people of Nineveh, when, when Jonah showed up with a chip on his shoulder and told them that, that God was going to wipe them out, they didn't say, well, prove it. No, they repented. They turned to God and were saved. Jesus is saying, listen, look at the information you have. Deal with that. He's not saying be mindless, be irrational. He's saying look honestly at the information that you already have. Jesus said that he hasn't been hiding his light. He is the light. He is on the lampstand. What he's been doing, he's been doing in full view. He's not been sneaking around. There's no secrets. There's no hidden agenda. It's all out there for everyone to look at. See, Jesus is the light. But the problem isn't that the light isn't shining. The problem was with their eyes. They weren't looking at the light. They were closing their eyes. Or their eyes, more accurately, were bad. They couldn't see the light. They were blind. And if you're totally blind, you cannot see even the brightest light. I remember talking one time with a uh, college student who had dozens of questions. We met for several weeks in a row at great length. And by God's grace, I was able to answer every one of his questions. And when we got to the point when there were no more questions, he started crying. And he said, I want to believe, but I can't. See, it wasn't 
an issue of inadequate information. It was that the information couldn't reach his heart. It couldn't get through. Because the information would have led him to a conclusion that he could not tolerate. He would not submit himself and his life and his behavior to the Lord. Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, Satan and his demons are doing everything they can to keep people unwilling to see the truth. That's the problem. And he's frightening them that God is harsh and unloving and demanding. And he's confusing them that the very things that they need in life, that will satisfy in life, are the things that God will keep from them. The only way to get what you really need in life is to stay completely away from God. He's convincing them that they are gods, that they can handle their own future, they can meet their own needs, and that the true God, the God who really loves them, is their competitor, is their enemy, is their opponent. See, that's the schemes, that's the desire of the evil one, to make people unwilling to see the truth, afraid to see the truth. But this blindness caused by the enemy is no excuse. God has revealed himself in creation, in his word, and most completely and ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. And these witnesses are there for anyone who will look to see that God is good, that God is wise, that God is powerful, that God is loving. So you see, they're without excuse. And what God's call to us as believers is to do three things. First of all, to pray that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. Secondly, to let Christ's light shine through us. Let His love control us so that people can see the lie that God is loving by the way that He loves through us and by our testimony of how He has loved us. And then third, as, as, as Paul says in, there in 2 Corinthians 4, to just simply lay the truth in front of them. Let the word speak for itself because faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So that's what we are called to do, to pray, to love, and to speak. And if you are here waiting to see the light of God shine in your life, the starting place is to recognize that it's not an intellectual question, not an intellectual issue. If there are intellectual questions, pursue them. Find them out. The information is out there. But don't keep telling yourself, just one more sign, one more piece of evidence, one more proof, and then I'll decide. That's not, that's not the truth. Recognize that Jesus is the light. And come to Him and let Him lighten your life. Turn away from the things that keep you holding on to the darkness and come to Jesus. He is the light of the world. In Him there is no darkness. Let me uh, just read three verses from the Gospel of John and then close us in prayer. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. And this is the judgment, that the light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Let's pray.
Lord, I confess that even as a believer, I succumb, I, I accept some of the lies of the enemy. I fear you at times, afraid to, to trust you, afraid that you will not love me, that you will not care for me. At times I get confused and stop from obeying you. Lord, uh, pray for each of us here that we would recognize the deception and the manipulation of the enemy, that we would give him no place in our lives, that we would resist the enemy and see him flee, that we would obey you right in the face of the fears and the confusion of the, uh, the other desires, that we would obey you. We would hear your word and obey it. I pray for uh, each uh, person here who has not yet come to you, has not allowed their life to be filled with your light. I pray that you would constrain the enemy, that you would enlighten the eyes of their heart, that they would see how much you really do love them, how good you are, how wise and powerful you are. Lord, use your word to penetrate their hearts and to free them, to find all that you have for them in Christ. Lord, we ask you for these things, confessing by faith that you are good, that we trust you completely, and we reject the slander against your character. And we look to your word. Help us to hide it into our hearts, to study it, to memorize it, to be set free by the truth. We pray this in your name. Amen.